You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 107. Today, we're asking the question, what research is needed to implement the Safe Work Australia WHS strategy? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name is David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, this was your idea. What's, what's today's question? Okay, so Safe Work Australia has, and we'll explain in the episode who Safe Work Australia is have published a document which is their strategy for the next 10 years. And so we had a bit of a look at it and we thought that rather than critique the strategy, we would talk about what the strategy needs in terms of support from research in order to be able to advance safety in the direction that it wants to. Yeah, my original question just for our listeners was, you know, to what extent can the Safe Work Australia strategy impact on the safety of work? But uh, Drew thought, well, let's come at it from a research angle. So, and I mean, I guess, I guess we'll talk about who Safe Work is, and you know, I think you can only pull on the levers that you can pull on, and you know, this is a statutory body that you know has has a few levers, and 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 we'll talk about what those are. So, Drew, do you want to give a little bit of background to the publication and to Safe Work Australia? Sure. So, yeah, not quite sure where the best place to start. So, this this document is a ten year strategy that was released in late February this year, covers 2023 to 2033. And it follows on from a previous strategy that covered up to 2022. So just to explain who it is who's producing this, uh, for our international listeners, if we, do we have international listeners, David? I think we've got some. We do have, we do actually, Drew, we've got quite a few. So in Australia, workplace health and safety is regulated at the state level. So that's organizations that basically like to swap backwards and forwards between safe work and work safe. So in Queensland, we've got workplace health and safety, which is part of industrial relations. Uh, in New South Wales, they have Safe Work New South Wales, which is part of the Department of Customer Service. Uh, in Victoria, they have WorkSafe Victoria. Uh, so Australia is a Commonwealth of States. So there is a federal government. There is a federal version of the Workplace Health and Safety, Works Health and Safety Act. And there is a federal regulator, uh, but they've got very limited jurisdiction. Basically, uh, the federal regulator, Comcare, basically takes care of government departments, government-owned corporations, um, and I think they have some authority in the Australian Capital Territory. And then we've got additionally this federal body called Safe Work Australia, which despite the name is not a regulator at all. They're a policy body, so they've got a very small budget, around $22 million. Um, which is tiny compared to the state regulators. And you just by comparison, uh, the workplace injury compensation schemes run in the billions. So I think WorkCover Queensland has something like $5.5 billion. So $22 million is basically enough to fund a small number of employees and run a few consultancies each year. So they've got like zero power to implement a strategy. What they're doing is they're providing uh, policy guidance and a kind of strategic nudge to everyone else on the direction they think things should be going. Yeah, so Drew, that sounds like a lot of regulation for 30 million people in Australia. So, But um, 
I guess they were established, Safe Work Australia was established in 2009 and, and at the time there was a lot of work going on to try to harmonise and and make consistent the WHS laws across the country. So, you know, at the time the federal government was really trying to promote collaboration and coordination across and alignment across the various states. You know, it can be hard to operate a company in, in one country when you've got to comply with, you know, seven different forms of, of WHS legislation. And they've continued on. And, um, and I guess this 10 year strategy document is the second version of their 10 year strategy document. Like you mentioned, Drew, the first one was 2012 to 2022. And, um, it's interesting to see when, when I guess, uh, uh, a body or, or a topic tries to actually forecast out what we're going to do over the next, over the next 10 years. So, Drew, the national vision that Safe Work Australia sort of position this strategy underneath is, is a vision of safe and healthy work for all, which I don't mind that. I, I think that's not too bad. Um, and I guess, Drew, the first point that is made in the introduction of this strategy document is over the last 10 years, um, particularly the last 10 years of the Safe Work Australia strategy, that injury and fatality rates have fallen significantly over the last decade. But, you know, they make the comment that progress has slowed. How do we, how do we feel about claims such as that? I've been looking around at various documents and I've come to the conclusion that if we actually believed the like introductory claims that things made, then we would be in a constant state of safety drastically improving but miraculously slowing just before the production of any new report or policy or strategy. Uh, it's almost like a ritual performance that you need to start off your safety document with. Look at we've come, how we've come so far, but we need to justify why we still need to do some more work. So either things are slowing down or conditions are changing. You, the fact is that in Australia, traumatic injury fatalities, uh, which are the main ones that they're counting, are really quite rare, even if you like add the entire country together. And by rare, we're sort of talking around 160 to 200 a year. Occasionally, you'll have a really good year, which sort of drops down to 140 or 130. And occasionally, you'll have a really bad year, which peaks up at about 300, which is exactly what you'd expect given the sort of underlying statistical distributions that drive these things. And when numbers are fluctuating like that, you can basically make the number go up or down just by exactly which year you start. You, when they claim a reduction, they're comparing to the year 10 years ago and saying last year was different to then. And so whether you pick 2011, 2012, or 2013, you just pick your starting point for the year that has the highest number so you can show the greatest greatest reduction. Exactly. If you happened for this one to pick five years, you'd be saying injuries have drastically increased in the past five years because we had a particularly good year at the five-year horizon. We had a particularly bad year at the 10-year horizon. So I guess that's it. And I think I saw on their website today in Australia that, you know, there were sort of 23 fatalities so far in, in 2023. So, you know, each of these individual events are, you know, hugely impactful and, and distressing. And at the same time, I guess, I guess, you know, our strategy, our strategy always needs to needs to look forward. So, Drew, I guess the claim that they make um, around this strategy document after that context is that the strategy, and I'll quote, the strategy sets a clear, unifying national goal to reduce worker fatalities, injuries, and illness. It sets out forward-looking actions to work towards with tangible and achievable targets to focus our efforts. So what are these targets that they're talking about? And they've got sort of six targets uh, that they call out, Drew, and I'll get your thoughts on them. The first is that they want worker fatalities caused by traumatic injuries to reduce by 30% over 10 years, mind you. The frequency of serious claims resulting in one or more weeks off work to reduce by 20%. The frequency rate of claims resulting in permanent impairment to reduce by 15%. The overall incidence of injury or illness to be below 35 
The frequency rate of work-related respiratory disease, which is very topical now, is 20%. And there was an extra one about no new acute cases of respiratory disease as well, or no new mechanisms around that. So, Drew, how do you feel, how do you feel about these as a sort of a set of targets and the quantum of these targets and even the nature of them? To, to be honest, these sorts of targets, if you were genuine about achieving them, you would basically need to change the national industry mix. You know, the sorts of things that achieve a 30% reduction in traumatic injuries is if we have a drastic scale back in either mining or agriculture. Uh, so, you know, deliberately causing a recession would probably do it. Or redefining some of our ways of counting fatalities have in the past achieved those sorts of reductions. Uh, when we have, for example, done things like change the, whether we include certain types of travel to and from work, can achieve a statistical reduction. But none of these are really what they're after. I really see no point in these sorts of targets. They are not tangible. They are not achievable. They're not even measurable. With the exception of the deliberate targeting of respiratory disease, I think is interesting and important and is the type of thing you can do in this strategy is to say, like, this is something that really, you know, it's a statistical aberration. Sorry, it's an aberration in the statistics that has an underlying cause that we should be able to deal with. And it just seems to have accidentally got out of hand because we weren't focusing on it. And so including something like something specific like that in the national strategy lets us focus on something that really should be systematically preventable. Yeah, and I agree in a moment. And I guess this is the first little, I don't know what it is, critique, uh, critique point is that, um, you know, again, they've fallen into the trap of, you know, measuring lagging indicators and, and using that as a, a way of, you know, measuring the overall strategy when really what we're going to talk about in a moment is five areas that the strategy sets out as clear focus areas. And it was a, it would have been a great opportunity to set some really specific and measurable targets in relation to those five uh, areas where they actually want to, you know, you know, make specific improvements as opposed to saying we're going to improve in these five areas and we're going to measure the effectiveness of the success of our strategy by these lagging indicators, which are impacted by a whole bunch more than what's in this strategy. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the, these targets are probably going to be the last really negative thing we say about the document. Because the things that they then decide to focus on are really positive. They're just totally disconnected from these indicators. Yeah. So, Drew, they talk, there was a few other bits of context, and, and I don't know whether it's necessary for the podcast or just a little bit interesting, but they talk. Can, am I allowed one or two more critiques before we get stuck into it? Okay, sure. Okay. Well, well I need mean, to the point of because, you know, this is a national WHS strategy, and, you know, it's read by a lot of people who are, who are maybe from a broad range of, of, of starting points or competency points in relation to safety management. So they go straight into this, you know, the four most common causes of workplace injuries are vehicle incidents, fall slips and trips, being hit by moving objects and body stressing. And, you know, I think we can all agree to that, but these things aren't causes. They're like mechanisms of injury. They're, they're not causes at all. So I think I think not only have they, the strategy fallen into the trap of setting lagging indicators to measure its effectiveness, they've also fallen into the trap of actually just classifying types of incidents as 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 causes and you know, I find that a bit of a bit of a shame because these documents, I guess, Drew, are not only an opportunity to set out, I guess, a strategic direction for research and policy, but and and industry activity, but also an opportunity to educate around how we how we might want to think about, you know, what what creates safety. Yeah, if I was like grabbing an MP in the elevator for thirty seconds, I would not choose as my one thing to tell them how the four most common mechanisms of workplace injuries are these four things. It, it's, um, I understand them trying to put in some factual context behind the strategy, 
Uh, but the selection of things to focus on are a little bit weird. Yeah. And so there's a range of other things in the front of this document and it's publicly available. We'll link it in, in the show notes and the comments on LinkedIn. But uh, so, so you can see all that. But maybe we just talk about the goal and the actions, Drew, um, and, get, and get into the detail. So the overall goal they just have is quite simply, you know, there was that vision earlier about a safe and healthy workplace for all. And now we've got this goal of reduced worker fatalities, injuries and illnesses. I guess, Drew, it's interesting to see policy, one of these strategies, because we've got the Traffic Accident Commission that have really locked, which is obviously the the road safety authority in Australia, they've really locked in behind this zero accidents mantra in all of their in all of their strategy work. And here we don't see zero, we you know, in a 10-year strategy, we just see reduced. And we're talking in the order of 15 to sort of 20%, 30% type reductions. So, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's the that's the direction. And they outline three enablers at a very high level. They want this strategy to embed good practices across all industries, which and really encourage organizations, all organizations to take more ownership of safety. And when they say organizations, they mean the owners of companies. They really want to innovate and deepen the knowledge of WHS risks. And they specifically call out improving the evidence base for, for how to manage it. So a direct throw to the contribution of, of safety research. And then a third enabler around collaborating consistently and effectively to respond to these challenges. So they're talking about collaboration across business owners, workers, government, industry associations, and unions. So these three enablers of ownership, you know, the evidence base and, and collaboration. I, I didn't mind them as you know at, at a high level as the direction the strategy was going to take. Yeah, I really like them to be honest, particularly the sort of what's included and not included. So notice that at that high level they don't have enforcement. There's no talk about particularly even the word compliance doesn't make it in at this stage. It comes in a few places later in the document, but at the like broadest level, they're conceiving. That improvement in safety comes from better knowledge, better practice within individual businesses, and better collaboration between various people involved, including uh, government, industry, and unions. And if you sort of think of that as like a mission statement for safety legislation and regulation and high-level strategy, that's that's almost radical in its focus on sort of positive efforts rather than on enforcement. Yeah, I agree. I thought I thought that was a good place to start, and and so then we we move into to five what they call specific actions. So Drew, what I might do is just sort of like I'll, I'll call out the action, and then we'll talk a little bit about what might be required from a research point of view in order to support this strategy over the next decade or so. So the first action is about information raising and awareness, and the specific actions are you know developing joint campaigns uh, specifically with materials and checklists to improve small business WHS awareness and compliance. And this comes up quite a bit, this idea of small business, Drew, that we might talk about in a moment, because the second point is to consult with small business about their communication preferences for how to receive WHS guidance, training, and to fill gaps in their knowledge. And then the third action is to collaborate with worker representatives and in industries, so I guess trade unions and, and, and industries with diverse workforces to reach group of workers with a higher health and safety vulnerability in high-risk industries. So they're looking, I guess, particularly at small business, raising awareness in small business and within, you know, marginalised or vulnerable parts of, of the workforce, Drew. So I guess, firstly, I'm not, not a fan of the idea that what we need to do with small business and diverse workforces is find better ways to communicate to them. And I think the fact that this is an obvious need, but this is the only solution we can think of to fill the need itself immediately points to a research gap 
where we need to be doing better as researchers to provide uh, just better things in the toolbox for government and organisations like uh, Safe Work to reach for, other than providing campaigns with materials and checklists to support small business. In, in, in defence of research, our funding models don't really help us there. Most safety research gets sort of funded directly by big business, which of course supports the needs of big business, not small business. And when regulators fund research, they tend to demand solutions. So they want research that's going to produce tangible results very quickly, which doesn't help with coming up with like new knowledge about small businesses. Sort of it, it's a model of research that supports top-down interventions with short-term evaluations. So really, we need a better understanding about genuinely what would help small business which is a challenge uh, because they typically lack the time and resource to engage with anyone. Uh, they don't have the time to talk to regulators. They don't have the time to talk to researchers. They don't have the time to read the pamphlets and checklists we like to throw at them or the websites we like to produce for them. And, and even if they, if they have any desire at all to access, access that, Drew. Um, and I've got a question for you, I guess, because didn't mention this idea of vulnerable workforce. Earlier in the paper, uh, Safe Work Australia call out being a younger worker a job that involves working alone, being from a culturally or ling linguistically diverse background, so maybe English is a second language, or working in more in a more complex contractual supply chain, like being a labour hire worker or a subcontracted worker. So these four areas they specifically call out of being a vulnerable worker. Drew, are you aware in the safety science literature that that is actually supported? Like, like do we know that those people are more at risk of of incident or injury? That is a surprisingly complex question, David, because measuring which workers are directly at higher risk is really, really hard to do and gets into all sorts of weird questions about categorization and measurement. What we can say is that we know for sure that most of our traditional strategies for managing and improving safety very obviously don't apply to these workforces. So if you think of someone who is switching from employer to employer, then any approach that's using things like safety culture is not going to help. Uh, you think of someone who is uh, working alone, then any strategy that involves supervision or work method statements or processes isn't going to help. You're talking to someone who doesn't speak English or at least doesn't read English, then anything involving documents is not going to help. Uh, and so... You know, I think the intuition that these are a highly vulnerable workforce is pretty self-evident. The direct evidence that they have a higher injury rate is uh, controversial, but only insofar as all measurement of injury rates is difficult and controversial. Yeah, thanks, Truth, and thanks for such a nice, eloquent answer on the spot. And I think, I guess, in this first action, there's two points where, you know, the, the research needs to support this strategy by filling that gap. You know, you know, you know how do we how do we think about managing safety and supporting safety in small business? And, you know, what are the ways that some of these vulnerable sectors of the workforce can be, you know, better supported with different strategies? So I, I know you mentioned the funding and there are two areas of uh, of industry which are probably less, the least likely to receive, you know, funding. But, um, you know, I think maybe there's a there's a place for government or even Safe Work Australia to to in support of this strategy to fund some research in those areas. Yeah, I'm aware of the um, Centre for Excellence in New South Wales funding a project into uh, community care workers. Um, and there's been some good work done out at UQ 
But these are just like scratching the surface. We need like entire careers of work to focus on specifically on some of these particularly difficult work situations and just give us a really good understanding about what's going on so that we can come up with better solutions than just trying to like reach out. Uh, there's this sort of sense that we, if we could only like fill the information gap, get to the person with the right spot of information that would make them safer. Uh, but we know that it's not information that's the problem. It's the actual, they're working in a dangerous work environment. They're working alone. They're doing difficult variable work. Of course, that's risky. And telling them that it's risky and telling them to think about the hazards isn't going to fix that for them. Yeah, Drew, I was just, um, I should have looked it up, but, you know, I know in New Zealand is a very high percentage, but in Australia, it might even be 80 or 90% of the workforce actually work in small to medium enterprise. So we are talking about a very large part of the working population that work in, in relatively small businesses. Yeah, and I, I, one thing they, I mean, this is sort of below the level of a broad strategy like this, but once it comes to implementing this sort of thing, what counts as a small business covers a very broad spectrum. And it's likely that our strategies for dealing with small businesses who almost exclusively subcontract to larger businesses is going to be very different from our strategy dealing with small business who retail directly to consumers. Yeah, and, and, and family-owned businesses, hospitality. Like, There's a whole bunch of that. You're right. It is a big, complex network of types of operating contexts that you know probably need specific, would need specific strategies around them. But again, I think what we, what we conclude in that first action is seems like a reasonable idea, um, but we probably don't have a great evidence base to support that, that action in the strategy um, at the moment. The second action that they go for, Drew, is called national coordination. And I guess this is, I guess, part, part their role as Safe Work Australia. But the first is to, sh the first action is to share insights across jurisdiction and industries so that successful initiatives can be replicated and scaled in other jurisdictions and workplaces to work with resource, with researchers, sorry, to identify emerging WHS challenges and to engage with national employers to better understand impediments to working across jurisdictional lines and to coordinate on monitoring and improving the WHS framework at the national level, including Safe Work Australia preparing, you know, regulations, code of practice and other materials. So Drew, this seems very much like the position description of Safe Work Australia for the next 10 years. <laughs> yes, it, de it definitely does. L let me point out a couple of areas where we need research to directly support this sort of coordination effort. So for overseas listeners, Australia, so I mentioned this sort of like weird, we've got occupational health and safety fractured as a state responsibility. We managed to successfully put in place what's sometimes called the model safe work. So basically this is harmonized legislation. So even though they're different states, each state has exactly the same legislation in place, which was supposed to sort of like help with the problem of uh, companies that have to work in multiple states, that at least they'd be operating under the same laws. But what we've discovered is that that wasn't the only problem. <laughs> and there are lots of unintended effects when you both work between states, but also when you try to standardize between states. So David, our own safety clutter work uh, talked about some of the unintended effects of national standardization, that actually standardization can, in places, sort of increase unnecessary safety work because it tries to be uniform instead of trying to be specific to the needs of a particular person at a particular place at a particular time. So Drew, this, this idea of, so standardization, I guess, is really important to understand, you know, the value that that creates, I guess, I guess in the eyes of, of a Safe Work Australia body, having a consistent framework across a national level and then trying to look at, you know, companies working cross jurisdictional lines, it feels a little bit like the garbage care model of organizational choice 
like Safe Work Australia's solution that's trying to craft this 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 problem. So I actually don't know how big a problem it is currently. I guess at a maybe at a company level it's a problem, but I think at a frontline level, working with lots and lots of Australia-wide companies, they don't think about this too much. Yeah, that's interesting. I I know I've had companies complain about sort of specific aspects of standardization, but it's not been at the sort of legislative level. It's been things like um, national audits that they need to comply with or obtaining particular certifications that have caused problems. So I guess that's one we, so, and I guess it's good that they've got here as one of their direct bullet points is like directly talking to national employers to understand what are the difficulties because they may not be what people are assuming. And I think there's also in this one, Drew, like it, it talks about preparing regulations, codes of practices and other materials. And, you know, you, you made a comment here that we need to think it, you know, we need to understand and research what makes a good code of practice. And then we also need to research how these codes of practice gets used. And if we've just made one statement earlier that we've got a huge challenge with um, vulnerable workforce and small business workforce, I'm not sure how, you know, regulations and codes of practice are going to I'm not I'm not sure those those companies are picking up and reading the regulations and the codes of practice. Yeah, David, I genuinely don't know the answer to that. Our, our, our whole regulatory regime is based around having sort of like three tiers, legislation at the top and then regulation and then codes of practice below that. And so there's a lot of work that goes into producing these codes of practice. But I've got no idea who reads them or uses them. Except if you do something wrong and you get prosecuted, they'll use failure to comply with the code of practice as part of the evidence that you weren't managing safety like you were supposed to. But when you pick up the codes of practice, some of them, we know they're not being used because they're useless. They, like the entire code of practice is just generic information that's copied from the regulations. Uh, so I know the National uh, Construction Code of Practice falls into that. Like entire document is just repeats of information that's found elsewhere. Um, and then you find other ones like there's one for like abrasive working that's got to do with when you're doing things like grinding stone benches. And this has got to do with some of the respiratory problems. The first third of the document is just entirely generic information about risk management. But then suddenly it dives into a chapter that's like filled with specific information about hazards and controls and percentages of material and what to watch out for and how to lay out your workspace and stuff that I imagine would be really quite useful if you were trying to sort of check that your business was doing everything it should be to manage dust in that sort of work. So, you know, I think there's both general work we need to do on how people use codes of practice and then a very specific evidence-based review of the current codes of practice, decluttering them, getting rid of all the generic stuff, making sure that everything in them is genuinely evidence-based. And then where there's not enough evidence for a code of practice, either getting rid of the code of practice or doing the research to make sure that it's now evidence-based. Yeah, I like that, Drew. And I think even that initial research question, which um, fair challenge, because I've made a lot of assumptions about how I think people consume safety information. And I think, you know, there's a there's an initial question, you know, how do how do different types of businesses actually, you know, access information about safety? When do they access it? Where do they access it? How do they use it? And if a lot of those people say they get their information from the codes of practice, then it's a great strategic opportunity to invest in those. If no one says that they get it from codes of practice and they get it from Google searching or something like that, then maybe, you know, focusing your efforts in, you know, Wikipedia or, or something different is a is a is a better way of actually getting information out there. But I, I, I think it's a good point that, you know, before we can talk about all of the things in this national coordination topics and the levers that are available, we actually need to know how people access and, and use safety information. 
David, you've now got me imagining the um, state regulators em employing people as guerrilla Wikipedia editors and like answering questions on Quora just to like increase the amount of good information and decrease the amount of misinformation that people get from a Google search. Well, why not? But if that's genuinely how people are accessing information, then that's a genuinely good use of resource, better than a code of practice that no one reads. Absolutely. So the third, the third action here, Drew, is data, data and intelligence gathering, uh, the third action area. So the two specific actions under that are to identify new data sources from industry, social surveys, and other sources that supplement official workers' compensation claim statistics, and to collaborate across government, social partners, and research communities to ensure that national surveys and other data collection efforts include WHS measures and occupational information where possible super ambitious 10-year strategy for data and intelligence gathering. Excuse the sarcasm. Uh, so so uh, we can pat ourselves on the back here and shout out to our PhD researcher, Kevin Geddert, who is quite literally doing a PhD on that includes sort of mapping other sources of information to workers' compensation claim statistics as a way of improving company internal information. And at the same time, he is, Kevin is advocating for much more company openness of information. And this is something where if we combine this goal with the next action, they mention in the next action the idea that government should be a model employer when it comes to workplace health and safety. And what I think would be a genuine opportunity is if government tried to be a model employer, not just in compliance, but in things like sharing internal safety information, if they're willing to like put out some of their internal statistics in the same way that we would hope all employers do and share information on accidents. The government has the least worry about liability or prosecution than any organization. So they should be the most open to sharing and should be the most sort of like willing to take the lead here in being the people who make better use of the, and provide better access to the information we already have on safety. Yeah extra surveys or including safety questions on general social science surveys is not going to generate good information. But lots of companies have good information internally, if only we could find ways of better sharing and making use of that information. Andrew, I guess, I mean, you know, Commonwealth departments and government departments in Australia, you know, still, you know, take out legal privilege just like every other company when there's a when there's an event and 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 don't share just like everyone else. But I agree with you. I think there's a huge opportunity uh, there as well. I, I'm just a little bit surprised that this data and intelligence gathering action, you know, in the same month that, you know, everyone's talking about artificial intelligence and chat GPT and, and, and that, and now we're casting forward to, to 2033. I just find this a little bit weak and nearsighted. Given, given the timing of when they were preparing this strategy and when the sort of like big awareness of chat GPT came out, I, I can't, you can't really expect them to have reacted that quickly to it. And, and what is there really to say? I mean, you're a 10-year strategy. You don't want to like try to guess what's going to happen next with AI. But, you know, the most you could put in is like a statement like, look for opportunities to new use new data technologies. Which if they'd said that, we were being, we'd be sceptical about what are the actual capacities of AI to analyze bad data. Yeah. Well, maybe I, I, I don't know. I'd be I'd be more ambitious than that, and 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 put a put a flag out there within the next decade to be using AI to you know to to be to be predictive in in different ways that we're not able to be predictive today. You know, I think that's the data and intelligence gathering one. The fourth action, Drew, is about health and safety leadership, 
And there's there's a few specific actions here around jurisdiction developing and refining their own strategies. So that's just a little bit like, you know, each state have your own strategy. Liaise with the vocational education and training sector. So this is like the trade skills sector about the future health and safety requirements for workers and how to promote the importance of WHS through vocational education. And then increasing the training of WHS officers, representative managers, supervisors as key leaders of a healthy and safe workforce. This is the flip side of those targets about reducing the number of injuries. And this is where I would, this is, so you would have loved them to say something more ambitious about AI. I would have loved them to say, put in a concrete target for improving education and training. That is something that is really easy to quantify. And why not just do it? We've got a desperate need for more safety, more safety professionals and more professional safety professionals in Australia. And at the level of a national strategy, that's the way that we get there. Not by like increasing training or liaising with the vocational education and training sector, but by actually committing, and particularly again, this is where government could take the lead as a model citizen, committing to employing postgraduate qualified safety managers and committing to, you know, within 10 years, that's going to be the standard that we're aiming for when it comes to safety professionals is we're going to aim over that period of time to, you know, that's long enough to start phasing out the people who don't want further qualifications. It's time to give people education who want it. And it's the time to train new people coming up from university. You know, we could achieve an actual sort of transformation in our WHS officers, our inspectors, if we wanted to. And I guess, yeah, I'm personally sad that we're not willing to commit to that sort of step change in professionalism in safety. Yeah, and I think we can see it in you know climate action now that you can do those things. Like I mean, I mean, in some parts of Australia, that you know they're, they're saying that you know from 2035 onwards, it will be illegal to to buy or you know against the law to to buy an internal combustion engine or a, or a petrol vehicle. So so I guess I mean that's 12 years away. So you can say those things and gives you time to um, build the structures around that. I still also think this should extend to company directors, Drew, you know, particularly with that small business challenge. You know, the government knows by the Australia Security Investments Commission or ASIC, every single person who's a director of a company in Australia and, you know, expecting you know every one of those directors to have some sort of qualification by some point in time is an unrealistic thing either to have in a national strategy. But this this strategy sort of this strategy sort of lacks those big sort of points in time over a decade that you'd want to try and orientate yeah, your funding, your policy, your system towards. But getting to our research uh, focus, what, one of the real gaps here is we, we find sort of consistently in existing research this talk about the weakening of apprenticeship as a way that people learn about hazards and learn how to be safe in the workplace, but mostly just because overall weakenings of apprenticeship as a way to get into vocations. And so I think that's an area where we genuinely need research is we sort of need to understand, we've still obviously got the people in trades despite the weakening of apprenticeships. So we need to understand how those pathways are currently working, how people are acquiring their sort of early socialization into vocational trades and work out how to properly influence that. And I mean, maybe the answer is better training, but I kind of doubt it, you, or at least we'd need to take a very broad idea about what training involves. Certainly training would not be training courses. It would be how do we sort of manage that early time in the workforce 
in, in order to get people sort of like starting off on the right foot with understanding hazards. It's a little bit like driving. It's both, you've got this danger period the first few years you're in a new job and we want to protect people for that danger period. But it's also when you learn your lifelong habits and we want to make sure that people establish your good habits when we're relying on behavioral controls at that level. So that's an area where in order to improve things, we need to understand things, which means we need more research. Yeah, you're right. And, and adding safety training here and there is not the same as understanding, you know, how people acquire their understanding of safety prior to and, and, and early on in their, in their vocational careers and trades. So it's a great, great point, Drew. So the fifth action, and this is where we get c- compliance and enforcement gets a mention. So specific actions around the different jurisdictions in Australia collaborating to improve compliance across supply chains of goods and, and labour. So obviously these these national networks, um, I guess particularly since the first mechanism, mechanism of injury they spoke about was vehicle accidents and there's lots of nationalisation of supply chains for, for road transport. Targeting national compliance and enforcement campaigns to poor performing sectors, including the high-risk sectors identified in this strategy, and developing insights from the data on prosecutions, notifications and breaches and increased knowledge sharing across the WHS system and then to strengthen compliance with consultation, representation, and supervision to improve worker health and safety. So, so bravo for putting compliance and enforcement last, and bravo for the focus on consistency, because I think one of the challenges we've got in Australia, particularly at the moment, and I think different countries sort of go through a cycle of this, is we've got a race to be the strictest state when it comes to prosecutions. And it ends up in this sort of weird situation where it's not about what you as a company did, it's about where you were located and when the next election is, what the likely consequences for your company are. Even to the point of like directly changing away from our unified legislation so that states can put in individually harsher penalties and more sort of personal liability for safety. And so I'm glad that this strategy doesn't buy into that. And I think consistency is a politically safe way to fight back against some of that. But it also raises some really interesting research questions because you know, we can't have like stronger compliance on things like consultation, representation, and supervision until we have some idea what good consultation, good representation, and good supervision looks like. The legislation's got like specific provision for workplace safety committees and like worker representatives. And we've got no idea what those people are supposed to do. And often there's strong anecdotal evidence that those people don't have any idea what they're supposed to do either when they get appointed to those positions. And so we really need to understand what good looks like before we start strengthening compliance against that. Otherwise we're forcing people to have a committee and they've got no idea what to actually do with that committee. Just tick the box that we've got it, fine, we comply with the legislation now. Andrew, I guess you've also got a, a comment here about what do we know about the different types of enforcement? Yes, so, so state regulators have got all sorts of different tools. They mentioned some of them here. Uh, prosecutions, notifications, breaches, all like different types of things a regulator can do. But we don't have good evidence about what the effect of doing those things are. You know, there are internal guidelines inside the inspectorates on when to do each one and how to decide when to do each one. But those aren't evidence-based. They're more about establishing like internal consistency and being able to defend your decisions. We don't really, and in particular, we've got no evidence as to whether things like harsh prosecutions or particularly personal accountability in prosecutions 
whether that has a positive or negative effect. And I mean, David, I've got a pretty strong opinion about it. I'm sure you do too. But the evidence is genuinely mixed and there are sort of theories that point in each direction. There are theories that genuinely suggest that making directors personally liable should improve safety. And there's theories that say, no, that will actually make things worse. But we haven't done nearly enough research on what the actual effect is. What happens to a company when they fear prosecution? What changes within the company? What additional documents do they produce? Does it create safety clutter? Does it remove safety clutter? Does it improve sharing of information? Does it hurt sharing of information? Lots of different effects that might be going on that we're not currently measuring. And until we know, we should be very cautious about trying to get like stricter on prosecutions or trying to be lax on prosecutions. We should be as neutral as possible till we have the evidence. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I always just think of this tension that, you know, where would where would I rather invest my time and effort? Would I want to would I invest in education or enforcement? And if we circle back to the very first comment about small business and how and where they access information, I'm not sure a lot of small business even knows if anyone ever gets prosecuted in their sector. You know, unless it's on the on the radio in the morning on the way to work, I'm not sure they they know. So this idea of a deterrent effect is, you know, maybe not real. And you know, even if it is, you know, I think we, we we know from a from a fear and compliance point of view, it's not necessarily a motivator of of, of behaviour in in the workplace or for business owners um, who are faced with a whole bunch of other contextual factors that are informing their decision. So I, I I just think that there's a real, you know, it's interesting now that where we've got this whole section on enforcement and compliance that the word education doesn't doesn't appear here, and I thought we'd we'd learnt over over decades, particularly in road transport, that. You know, a big part of enforcement was education, or a big part of regulation was both enforcement and education. I mean, to, to be to be fair, their previous item was about education, so it's not like they've ignored education. It's just, yeah, yeah, maybe this like separation of compliance and enforcement, as if like compliance and enforcement are themselves something that you build a campaign around, as opposed to it might be one part of a campaign in order to support or bolster or draw attention to even other things that you're doing. So Drew, it sounds like you're doing a good job of playing good cop today and maybe it's my turn to play bad, bad <laughs> cop a little bit, but I guess I'm just a little bit underwhelmed uh, if, this is, if this is paving our next decade. But in any case, um, practical takeaways. Do you want to sort of just you know, help our listeners with what, what, a, what the practical takeaways might, might be here? Okay, so, so my first practical takeaway was actually just a question for you, David. Uh, what do you think about just this idea of having a national strategy? Good, bad, indifferent? Look, I think if it's credible and it provides direction and, and I mean, if you look at the logos on the front of this strategy, you've got every state regulator in the country and a whole bunch of other bodies. And if this sort of provides a direction for investment in, in policy, in research, in, in industry support, then I think that's far better than having seven, eight, nine, ten different organisations doing a whole bunch of different different things. So I, I'm very much in favour of having a national strategy, just perhaps not this one. Yeah, and, and I suspect that that is the trade-off that we're facing, is that in order to build consensus, consensus is often weaker and less specific than any individual might do, but at least we have consensus rather than ten different strategies. One of the really good things about this document, though, and I'd put this in practical takeaway for everyone, is it lists out these six challenges that it thinks are going to affect safety over the next 10 years. And I think they've, I mean, there may be other ones, but I think every one of these six is spot on as something that people should be thinking about strategically, whether they're a country or a regulator or 
just managing safety within a business on your strategy board should be these six things. So just a reminder from the start. So the six things were uh, increased AI and automation and what effect is that going to have on the business? Uh, changing types of work and what effect that's going to have. Changing demographics, uh, which in Australia is an older and more immigrant workforce, but maybe different where you are, but still everyone faces changing demographics. Uh, hybrid work and the effect that has on safety. Climate change and the effect that has on the business and then therefore on safety and more complex supply chains. And I think that if like every year you went through and thought, how are those six things gonna affect us? Or even every five years, you thought about, let's have a plan for how the business is gonna change and how we're gonna adjust our safety accordingly. That would be something that is worth doing at the strategic level. Yeah, I agree, Drew, we skipped over those, but um, I think that's important in any strategy document to, to talk about you know, what's the context that you're responding to. And then Drew, your last takeaway here. So my last takeaway is just that we always need this balance between trying to improve safety by doing the stuff we're currently doing better, which you would think of just as increasing compliance, and changing what we're doing by innovating and increasing our knowledge of what actually works. And I think it's important in any strategy to think about where that balance currently is with your country or your business. Are we in a state where there's lots of stuff that we know that we're just not implementing? Or are we in this state where we're actually doing fairly good compliance with what we've got, but we've got real uncertainty about whether we're doing the right things and maybe we need better evidence about what would actually work. And it's good for, good for every strategy to have some balance of those two things. Great. Thanks, Drew. So the question for today was, what research is needed to implement the Safe Work Australia WHS strategy? Your answer. I, I don't have a one sentence answer this time, David, but I've got two suggestions. The two biggest things I could find after I sort of went back through and thought about you know, what's in the strategy, what we said. Firstly, understanding how regulators interface with different types of organisation. We need more research that doesn't just say, hey, let's research small business, but that dives into particular workforces. And the second one is that we need to get specific about some of our like big practical problem areas. Look at the codes of practice and look at what's the actual evidence base behind how we're currently approaching specific industry problems. Great, Drew. I, I think in this strategy, my one word answer for that would have just been lots, lots of research. <laughs> I, I think there's, I think, I think this, this strategy raises, you know, there's a lot of assumptions in this strategy and I think there's a lot of research under, you know, big underlying research questions in, in here. So shout out to Safe Work Australia, I guess, if you want to spend some of that $22 million, Drew will be happy to, to, to take that money off your hands. But that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us in the discussion on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 